stressed, need to talk? Call Health Center, a peer counseling and crisis intervention hotline at the University of Maryland. Health Center is here to listen. No issue is too big or too small. We are here for you. Help Center offers anonymous and confidential hotline phone calls and walk-in services, free anonymous pregnancy testing, and free condoms. Call 301-314-HELP or stop by Help Center on the third floor of South Campus Diner today. You are not alone. Won't you please, please help me? Live from WMUC Digital College Park, I'm Christopher Walkup. I'm Michael Brennan. And this is Revolution on the Air. I've been away for the last couple of weeks canvassing in Virginia, which has been an experience. But now we are back, and we have a very, very special guest with us today. Appropriate that I'm back now, because we are going to be talking with a local political figure, uh, Alex Tobin, a government and politics undergrad here at UMD, and a city council candidate for District 2 in College Park. Thank you so much for joining us, Alex. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Michael. It's always great to talk to you, and I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get started with the basics. So what is the City Park College Council? College How- Park City Council. College Park City Park College. <laughs> College Park City Council. And uh, how many people serve on it? And uh, what what areas fall in District 2? Right. So uh, College Park City Council is the governing body of the municipal city, College Park. Uh, there's four districts, uh, two council people from each district. Uh, then there is a mayor. Um, so that's going to bring a tiebreaker. So if it's a 4-4 vote, the mayor will break the tie and make it a 5-4 vote. So eight council people, one mayor, and then there's a city manager. It's a city council manager system. Uh, the city deals with a lot of important issues. It talks about environmental sustainability. Uh, we talk about housing affordability, quality of life issues important to College Park residents. And of course, it's the representative to the county, Prince George's County. It's also the representative um, of the city to the university um, and to the uh, Student Government Association. So District 2 uh, is Branchville, Berwyn, Lakeland. Uh, it then slivers to take the view in varsity. It then comes on campus Okay, so we're at the McKeldon Mall. That whole area is District 2. Okay. And it ends at Common 3 and Commons 4. No other Commons, just Commons 3 and Commons 4. <laughs> so if you're following me here... Are it, we going to get to talk about gerrymandering <laughs> at all today? Or no? <laughs> it, it starts it starts in, in, in Branchville and then goes Berwyn, and then it goes right through the middle of the city. Um, and so uh, below it is the 3rd District, and above it are 1 and 4. Um, District 2 is amazing. I think we have uh, different kind of communities here in District 2. We have long-term resident. We have student communities. And I think District 2 is a great place to start in bringing communities together. And uh, I've been in District 2 for some time and and wanted to get involved. Um, To give you a little background about myself, uh, I got involved in city elections in 2015. um, And there I saw kind of how important the city is and how we can make it better. So I got involved in beautification projects. I got involved in the SGA street cleanup. I, I ran one of the street cleanups um, 
the SJ Street cleanup goes around to make sure that there is light at night for students and long-term residents to make sure we're safe at night. I then got involved with the Quality of Life Committee, um, co-chaired by Stephanie Stolick from District 3 and PJ Brennan from District 2, um, a fellow candidate. Uh, so on that committee, we work to um, bring better quality of life between students and long-term residents when it comes to noise often. Uh, when it comes to student and long-term resident safety, that's a big thing. When it comes to UMD partnerships with the city, um, we can talk about the daycare partnership as an example of that. Um, so the quality of life, I got involved on that uh, government committee and then decided uh, to run for office. I think, um, as we can talk about my experience with Congressman Raskin's Democracy Summer program really uh, inspired me. Um, I was on my Justice and Legal Thoughts Scholars Council. So a lot of things kind of brought me in this direction, and I wanted to give um, a voice to uh, long-term residents, a voice to students, and really work to better our community. So you mentioned the Democracy Summer as a point of inspiration. Um, can you speak to um, Congressman Raskin's politics, how you would identify with it, and where where you feel like maybe you're picking up the baton, I guess, in, in mm -hmm. that analogy? Uh, so Congressman Raskin is terrific. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think there's any other way to he say it. He has your endorsement. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. Um, I certainly love him. Uh, and he brings such compassion to politics. I think he's everything we want in a politician. Um, he's so kind. He's so thoughtful, brilliant leader. He's already doing terrific things in Congress. Um, but when he was running for Congress as a, as a state senator, he had a program called Democracy Summer, which got local young progressives involved in politics and I think a really unique way and I'm just one of uh, one of many um, that did the program and have benefited from it I know um, our current SGA director of government affairs was part of that program as well um, and I see kind of the alumni of that program doing great things in progressive politics um, but Jamie cared about the people around him uh, I think Chris yeah just smile I think Chris was also a part of that program were you on <laughs> were you on the yellow team what team were you? I have no idea. This was I was in the team on in 2016, so maybe there weren't team colors then. Okay. Yeah, you I wasn't one of the original. Oh, okay. Okay. So people, yeah. I led the yellow team. <laughs> okay. Um, <and> we're <laughs> the yellow what is team. the yellow team? The best team. I mean, can you elaborate? We, <laughs> what, to, what are the to, teams? To, to learn things, to hear speakers, to go out and get involved and talk to local communities. We sometimes had teams for organization, and I, I, I led the, the yellow team. It's nothing very special, I can assure you. Um, but Jamie's doing great um, progressive things, uh, obviously, in Washington, and had been giving a voice to students actually before he even got into politics as, as a lawyer. Um, so I think he's he's terrific and he's what we need in Maryland. And I certainly think, you know, I don't know if I think you do me too much credit by suggesting I'm taking up his baton, um, <laughs> you know, uh, but I'm certainly inspired by the humanity and compassion he brings to politics. And at any time I can spread that message. And speaking about how Jamie Raskin is stuck up for students, I actually learned this recently, and we should have some guests coming on in the next couple of weeks to talk about this. But it's my understanding that when Jamie was in the state Senate, he was the prime sponsor of a bill that would have given graduate students bargaining rights. Oh, really? Yes, he was actually that guy. Uh -huh. So. Nah, this, Where is he now? <laughs> Jamie Raskin is a fantastic progressive, and both as a lawyer and as a politician and political activist, he, is, he has constantly been fighting for students. And I think that segues into you've worked on his campaign, you've worked in SGA, you've worked in the city of College Park, and mm -hmm. now you're running for office in College Park. Can you talk about what issues you're running on? I, I've actually... Full disclosure, I've knocked on a couple doors for you, and mm -hmm. so I have some talking points that I've gone through, but I want to make sure now that I've gotten the talking points right and mm -hmm. that you, uh, <laughs> that people who are listening to this can know what you, what exactly you stand for. Right. So there's a lot of issues facing College Park. I think the first one I want to talk about uh, is voting, and I think we have to talk about uh, access to voting and the absentee ballot issue here at College Park. Uh, I can, I'm concerned about the current rules for how someone has to get an absentee ballot. Uh, there's five in College Park. You have to be sick, have a death in the immediate family, uh, attend an academic institution out of town. Um, there's a few others, but none of them encompass people who do not technically leave the city, but who through work, studies, or daycare 
will have negative consequences if they leave their job or, or studies or daycare to get to the polls. Uh, that is a problem because it dissuades people from voting. And the people we're hurting are often, unfortunately, low-income families um, who don't have a place to put their children. We're hurting um, low-income families who are working hourly jobs. Uh, and we're hurting students who are studying and face some repercussion for just not being at class. Um, and so when we look at Maryland, it's in no excuse absentee ballot state. Um, you don't need an excuse or any reason to get absentee ballot in Maryland, um, as I believe is true with 27 other states, if I recall. Uh, Annapolis, the city, is a no excuse ballot city. So anyone in Annapolis can require it. Hyattsville, which is a neighbor here, no one has to have an excuse to get an absentee ballot vote. It's only in College Park. And that's hurting certain populations. And if we're going to have the city council be uh, responsible and be able to be in touch with its electorate, we want as many voters as possible. Uh, and we can see in College Park um, that voting is not high. And to that point, are there any opportunities to early vote? Or is it literally just... This year, it's going to be November 7th. So November 7th, 2017, yeah. come make your voice heard or That's you're not going to be represented. That is absolutely correct. There's no early voting, um, which is something I would be um, very willing to entertain. I think that would be a good way to get people to the polls. But it's an off-off-year election, yeah. right? Off-off-year election. And we don't have any early voting or absentee ballot system that allows for these people um, who don't technically leave the city to vote. Just to be clear, there is an absentee ballot system, but you have to meet um, five very specific requirements. So that's a big issue uh, that I want to address to get more people to the polls. Another um, is environmental sustainability. I think that uh, under the current uh, administration right now, um, pre national presidential administration, that it falls on cities um, to kind of up their game on environmental sustainability. Um, um, so, so just real quick, we're going to take a little break, but then we're going to get into these city and university issues, um, including um, on the environment, the non-citizen voting issues, um, the Mayor Wojan declared uh, Indigenous Peoples Day on October 9th, um, and the other things that we talked about, including your platform. So Excellent. We'll take a little break. a parking lot with a pink hotel a boutique and a swinging hot spot don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone they paid paradise put up a parking lot they took all the trees put them in a tree museum Charge the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Hey, farmer, farmer, put away the DDT now. Give me spots on the apples, or leave me the birds and the bees. That you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Late last night, I heard the screen door slam. And a big yellow taxi took away my old man. Don't it always seem to go? That you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. I said, don't it always seem to go? That you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. <laughs> Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. So I was singing along in the background, yes. so you all missed that. Chris was enjoying that. Um, so, 
Yeah, let's jump into those city issues we were just getting to. So mm-hmm. you're talking about absentee val- uh, ab- absentee uh, voting. Um, let's let's go into the more recent controversy that's cropped up, mm-hmm. which is um, the whole issue of non-citizens voting in municipal elections. So can you speak to um, what is the controversy? What what's happened over the past two months? Mm-hmm. Um, what there there's issue with the the like bylaws yeah. of the city council and the charter. Right. So yeah. speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So uh, strap in. <laughs> we'll give you the whole history here. <laughs> so uh, this non-citizen voting is just as it sounds. It's that for just municipal elections, uh, non-American citizens can vote in College Park. It was introduced, I believe, by Councilwoman Nagel. Um, and it raised controversy on both sides because of the idea of what is citizenship. Um, the non-citizen part didn't um, make any discrepancies between green card holders um, and um, non-documented citizens. Um, and so this really brought the community out. And some people wanted it on a ballot referendum, which means that the council would not have voted for it. It would have been a non-binding referendum where the voters on November 7th would have voted for it. So there's a couple issues at play here. First, should the council have made the call here or should it gone to the voters? And if the council is going to make the call, what call should they make? Should they pass this or not? Those are the two separate issues here. Um, we saw then a third kind of come up when uh, Fazul Kabir, Councilman Fazul Kabir, uh, suggested an amendment where only green card holders would be allowed to vote. Uh, so we can already see the complexities of this issue already. What happened was uh, the council decided to vote on it and not put it to a ballot referendum. And then the vote became 4-3-1. Fazul abstained. And that's going to become important. That doesn't seem important. This is going to become very important. It was four in favor, three against, one abstaining. They then looked at the charter and found for charter amendments, you need six votes, right? So they initially thought it had passed, but it had not. You need six votes. Um, so there was some disappointment, some elation, depending on what side you were on, um, and they thought that it was over. And this is where all the attention on it comes in, right? Because if I if I remember correctly, yeah, they didn't realize this immediately. They said, no. "Hey, we passed this," right. and then was it several days or weeks later? So, uh, I think days. It was a but, couple um, days later. Yeah, the Post, the New York Times. I mean, this was being reported nationally. I think Fox uh, did something on this. Um, this got the uh, the attention of, of the nation. And then, uh, recently, uh, it came out that the rule saying that you need six votes to have a charter amendment was not in accordance to state law. <laughs> so they weren't even allowed to have the six-vote requirement. And for something to pass, you must have five votes. Oh. <laughs> now we come back to the 4-3-1 comment, right? Because it didn't pass with five votes. It passed with four. If Mr. Kabir had voted against it, then Mayor Wuhan, then Mayor Wuhan could have been the fifth vote, but he didn't. He abstained. So it went through 4-3-1 and did not get the five votes to pass. So now we're, we're, you're caught up. We are now, <laughs> uh, we are now moving forward um, with non-citizen voting uh, being voted on 4-3-1 and having not passed. Um, I think the mayor and council are currently looking at the charter. I don't have the details on where the process is in revising the charter or other legal issues. Um, I'm sure you could reach out to College Park Council for that. But uh, the community is certainly uh, was certainly divided on this issue, and I think the council is trying to move on. As for me, I came out publicly in support of non-citizen voting. So my question is, we got national attention on this issue, but it's also my understanding that this would not have made College Park the first municipality to pass this kind of measure, right? This has been enacted before around the country, right? Mm-hmm. And specifically in Maryland, however, we would have been, I think, by by far might be a stretch, by significantly the largest uh, city okay. to pass this. Okay. Um, certainly with the most kind of political capital with the university um, right next to us. So it has been done before, and it had been done before in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were the first kind of, I don't want to say large city, mm-hmm. but um, influential city to do it. And you mentioned that this is a 4-3-1 vote. How did the two current 
council members from District 2 vote. So it's P.J. Brennan yeah, and, and Monroe, Monroe Dennis. Monroe Dennis. Um, so P.J. Brennan has been, you know, a strong uh, supporter of this. And um, full disclosure, you know, I've worked with P.J. on the Neighborhood Quality of Life Committee. I love P.J. I think I think he's fantastic. But um, he's been a very strong supporter of non-citizen voting. And at the, at the final vote, um, Mr. Dennis voted yes as well. So uh, both District 2 uh, voted in favor. Then you have uh, five candidates in District 2, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon. Um, and you have the other two uh, saying that they'd vote against it. Um, so in the race, you currently have three voting for. Of the five candidates, you have three in favor and two against. Um, and of course, I, I'm very proud of uh, PJ Brennan's work on this issue and really representing, I think, our District 2 on this issue. Um, and I would have liked to see that kind of passion and that kind of progress from all of the other um, council members as well. Yeah. Um, to be fair, of course, there are four yes votes. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit more about the absentee voting issue and mm -hmm. specifically how it affects students? I can easily see how somebody working a you know, eight mm -hmm. in the, a job eight in the morning to six at night and they have to drop their kids off at school and pick them up from daycare on election day might be severely right. impacted. Can you talk a bit more about what it means for students? Mm -hmm. Well, many students um, go to obviously go to classes, but they also work part time, mm -hmm. right? That's a huge issue, and so uh, you're going to have students who are going to classes during the day, and who are working hourly shifts at night. Um, another big thing uh, to point out is that it's off off year election, so I think this is part city council's responsibility to bring awareness to the fact that we're having city mm -hmm. elections, right? And absentee ballots and early voting are important ways to do that, to raise the profile of these city elections so more students get to the polls and students have their voice be heard. And can you talk about students voting in College Park in general? Because mm -hmm. I know, just looking at some of the voting numbers, across the entire city, we have about, what, one, one and a half thousand people that vote. And just in terms of students that live on campus, there are, what, 15, 10, 15,000 people. So clearly there needs to be work done engaging students mm -hmm. in the city, getting them out to vote. Can you talk a bit more about other ways to do that? Or do you think that yeah. early voting, uh, absentee voting would significantly drive up student numbers? Because I think you're right that the city, the city needs to reach out to students and make them know how important right. it is to vote in these elections. But right now, student turnout is probably two, three, four, maybe mm -hmm. five percent of the student body is registered in votes in city elections. Um, and I think in 2015, uh, Mayor Woyan got 1,200 votes, and I think Mitchell got 800 around there. So okay. I think it's probably a little over 1,000. But uh, to answer your question... I think it would be fantastic to increase the profile of city council to students and get more students involved if we had a student on city council who was involved in the community in a very productive way. Uh, when it comes to student voting, we've seen students voting in District 3 before, and that's largely largely due to IFC efforts, mm -hmm. our efforts to register uh, fraternity um, and sorority students. Um, and I think that sometimes has had a divisive effect yeah. Um, that's created anti-student sentiment um, as though we're just trying to take over the city council by registering a lot of students who don't have buy-in of the city and who aren't invested in the city. And that's not what this campaign is about. Uh, I'm talking to long-term residents in District 2 and students to bring them together. And I think it has to be a productive conversation. We have to also accept that it's hard to get students to vote in presidential elections, let alone off-off year city council elections. And, you know, <coughs> AJ's not going to love me for saying this, but SGA doesn't have a very high turnout among students, right? If we can't get students... Check out our first episode where we talk about SGA elections. Okay, there you go. <laughs> um, you know, if we can't even get students to show up to the Student Government Association, it, it's hard for them uh, to get out to city. So what we have to do is we have to show them that the city talks and discusses and covers issues that affect them affordable housing the environment voting rights these things affect students and that they have to have a role in their government too we have to convince them to buy into the city to become productive and invested members of the community that means meeting neighbors that means attending civic association meetings to getting involved in beautification projects and then when we do that we get the students invested in the city. And when a student is invested in the city, they're very likely to vote in the city. So raising awareness 
uh, by having the student on, on council, I think would be very helpful. Showing them that the city covers issues that they care about and helping them to get invested in the city. That's how we increase student turnout. So you brought up, I think, one of the central issues that I think would engage students in a, in a local campaign, which is affordable housing. Mm-hmm. I think that's something near and dear to the hearts of every um, person renting in College Park, because I think um, if you look at in, in the larger scheme of things, um, percentage of income and how much goes towards your housing, how much goes towards your food and your inelastic needs that you're going to have to be spending on anyway, and then the stagnant wages that we're receiving in terms of you know, these part-time jobs that we're working while we're going to school. Um, just given that background, what can be done on a city council level about affordable housing? What have you been talking with people about? Mm-hmm. What have been people's concerns about development and things of that nature? Yeah, so it's the cold, hard truth with affordable housing that Prince George's County has zoning rights. And that's a huge problem for city for the city to be able to increase affordable housing. Can so, you elaborate on that a little um, bit? Yeah. Okay. So one of the things, in fact, I think we talked to you, uh, I talked to you about this earlier and that other cities have tried, is encouraging uh, new high-rises being built to have certain amount of below-market housing. Right. And one of the ways we can do that is by... Uh, using zoning rules to entice them uh, to have a few floors. And we could do that by saying, uh, we'll let you build 20 floors uh, regularly. However, we'll let you build 24 floors if two of them are below market housing. But we have to have zoning rights, and we have to have that kind of control to be able to do that. We don't currently. And I know that Silver Spring, right over the border in Montgomery County, has has those rules in place, I believe. I don't know if it's as clear-cut as we'll give you more space if you mm-hmm. build more housing, but it, it's similar that I think they require 12 or 15% okay. of low-income or affordable housing units. So so if this is mostly a county issue, what can we do in the city? Is it going to be mostly lobbying the county and being an, an effective voice, or what, what else can we do? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be working also with the university, uh, being a strong partner to the university in a productive manner, uh, mutual agreements and mutual deals. But a lot of it is going to be urging the county and representing the city to the county. Um, there's the other issue of single-family households versus rentals, which I hear a lot um, when canvassing, and how to bring um, more single families to College Park as well, and the housing affordability when it comes to that question. and and a lot of factors are in play here when we talk about that. We talk about Prince George's County public schools becomes a factor, right? A lot of things uh, outside of College Park's control. And you also have to remember that Baltimore, the, the, I would suggest the biggest road in College Park, is not controlled by the city or the county. It's, that's a state road, right? So we also have to be talking to Senator Rosapep about, about this and how we're going to move forward. And how we're going to have smart and safe development and what kind of role the community is going to have in discussing development and how can we make sure development um, benefits uh, the city, you know, university students, but also local residents. Um, to get back to the main question, housing affordability for rentals, um, I would be lying to you if I said there's a very specific thing the city can do. Um, one of the things they could do is some kind of... Uh, subsidy program, um, which have been in place for certain um, groups. I believe um, for senior citizens in College Park, there's a program um, that can help them out. And for um, University of Maryland uh, employees as well, and city employees, there's a program. So we could try to expand that to other groups and demographics. But one of the largest things we're going to have to do is have an aggressive uh, representative stance to the county. And to um, the last point that we're going to hit on here, uh, environmental issues in College Park. I think that's another one that, for young people specifically and students, um, it's something that uh, it could drive people to rally around. So what what has been um, things you've been hearing while you're campaigning about environmental issues? Um, what has been your focus as a candidate? This is going to be one area I'm going to compliment the current council on, specifically with their bike share program, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's fantastic. That's had a lot of great reviews, and what that does is it eliminates uh, carbon emissions from cars, right, if you can bike short distances. Recently, the College Park City Council uh, is talking about styrofoam 
Okay. Styrofoam cups, which I believe some cities have banned and obviously don't decompose well um, and are a problem for uh, environmental sustainability. Um, and in fact, I think there was a, a Diamondback editorial suggesting that um, the ban on styrofoam would be too little, too late. But I have to say that <laughs> in, this, in this national presidential administration, it is up to municipalities to do everything we can to be environmentally sustainable. Right. Um, and I think that starts at the city level. Okay. Well, we're going to take our second break now. Stay tuned. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, current events, national politics. Boogie Shoes, Casey and the Sunshine Band. Check out Humble Eye tonight at the Void Halloween show. They'll be doing a Casey and the Sunshine Band set. Um, so we're back with our interview with Alex Tobin. Um, we're gonna before we go into the national politics stuff, the the fun stuff that we love talking about. Um, let's talk a little bit about your um, uh, your race specifically and who your opponents are and. Um, speak to, I guess, why people should vote for you over the other people. So who are you running against? Give us a little background on them from your perspective. Yeah, I'm running against uh, four other candidates. Uh, you're going to have the two incumbents, P.J. Brennan and Monroe Dennis, um, and then uh, Mr. Blasberg and Mr. Douglas. Uh, I think that our incumbents have represented us on the non-citizen issue, especially P.J., um, but I would like to see a more active role for District 2 and have someone... Um, really pushing these issues and who doesn't have to be uh, kind of pulled in that direction or coaxed in that direction who are out in front of these issues. And I also think having a student who's invested in the community is incredibly important uh, and would bring more students into the fold, more students into Berwyn Civic Associations, into Lakeland Civic Associations, and really move our city along. I am also uh, concerned um, by some of the rhetoric used by a few of my uh, fellow candidates in the Berwyn Civic Association Forum. I think a lot of differences were brought to light about Indigenous Peoples Day, about the non-citizen issue. Um, I think there, um, especially from one candidate, was a lot of attacks um, referring to the fact that all we're doing is trying to poke Christopher Columbus in the eye. Um, 
And there is a lot of tax um, from Mr. Douglas on on our incumbents. And I'm challenging the incumbents, right? I, you, it would seem that I would benefit from such a tax. But that's not the kind of campaign I think we should be running because I think a, a city campaign should really be a community discussion. So uh, I defended, actually, the incumbents from that attack. And I think that um, we have uh, a candidate in this race uh, who is divisive. Um, who is not sympathetic to some of the grave um, racial uh, concerns we have in this city, um, does not understand the impact that Christopher Columbus might have on some long-term residents and students in our community. And I think um, he's not trying to bring people together in any form and is kind of the antithesis of what we want from a community leader. Uh, and so I am running... Uh, to give voice to, uh, to progressive issues, uh, small, lower P progressive issues, um, like housing affordability, like environmental sustainability. But I'm also running to give people a voice, to give long-term residents a voice, students a voice, bring people together. And I think some of my opponents are actually, would bring us back in the wrong direction and have been divisive throughout this entire campaign and have not approached local campaigning the correct way. And then I think others uh, are not in front of these issues the way I'd like to be. I think District 2 is a unique opportunity to really bring these issues to light. Uh, I think District 2 shows a really important part of College Park, and I think that we need to have leaders of District 2 who are out in front of these issues, out in front of non-citizen voting, not just voting the correct way all the time, not just, oh, look at his score sheet, okay, he's voting correctly, but actually being an activist on these issues. And I think we see this at a national and state level as well, people who always vote the right way and and certainly um, are progressive in how they uh, act, but not necessarily showing leadership on these issues or showing leadership in the issues we need in the city. So I think I'd be able to do that very well. That's my pitch to the voters. And I've had a great time so far. I think voters have been receptive and I'm definitely looking forward to November 7th. So you brought up this issue a little bit, and I think it's fair to say that it's one of the more divisive issues in College Park right now alongside the non-citizen voting, and that's the declaration that October 9th of this year was Indigenous Peoples Day. And it's my understanding that the way it was declared is that it's going to be October 9th in the future will be Indigenous Peoples Day and not every Columbus Day in the future, but I might be wrong about that. Could you talk a little bit about what the mayor did and how you see the declaration of Indigenous Peoples Day as as a symbol, as, as mm -hmm. some way to maybe bridge racial divides that we see in our society and in our city. So I think I think it was on October 9th that it was passed. Yeah. I think October 9th will be the day, but I'm not completely sure. Um, what one of my opponents suggested was that we were you know, poking Christopher Columbus in the eye. And in fact, in, a, in the debate, he suggested we were saying that all College Park residents had committed genocide. That is not, to say the least, what we are suggesting. What we are suggesting is that Christopher Columbus represents a history, a history that is very dangerous, that is oppressive, that is imperialist to a portion of our population of both long and term residents and students, and that celebrating that might not be the best idea. Is this going to solve racial problems in College Park? Absolutely not. Uh, in fact, we talked at the debate about this, and I talked, he said, you know, why, you know, why do these social issues matter? We need to get back to the basics. And we do. We need to talk about jobs, housing, affordability, environment. But, you know, these are social issues are not these loose issues that don't really impact our community. Uh, we had a UMD student uh, who I think is probably a white supremacist, part of the Alt-Reich Facebook group. That's Alt-Reich, not Alt-Right uh, Facebook group, uh, murder a lieutenant African-American. And that's a real issue that happens in College Park. And setting a tone of positivity and inclusion is not going to solve all racial issues. Absolutely not. And I'm not proposing that it will. But it, we do need to create that welcoming environment because there are real world consequences if we don't. And so having a Columbus Day, I think, is inappropriate. I think it turns off some of, uh, of our long-term residents and students. And that having an Indigenous Peoples Day is much more inclusive, welcomes more people into the conversation, um, and is incredibly important. Well, I think that um, just getting back to your point on, on your opponent here, it's speaking to a larger, I think, shift in the way people do politics, right? Because mm -hmm. I think that the old way, whatever that means for people, is kind of like dissipating, whereas the there's the, to, to generalize very hard, the, the two new ways I would um, characterize as, I think, the way you're running in the way of like, 
engaging all the different communities, creating a conversation, um, you know, democratic participation and running on that and, um, you know, not relying on any sort of any one special interest to push you into office and then making, you know, the the consultant career, you know, that that whole aspect of Mm -hmm. it. And I think the other way at this point has been for people who don't have a popular agenda instead of bringing as many people into the process as possible they want to dissuade you from getting involved they want to make you just angry and they want to divide people among these identities where they know that by by doing it they elevate themselves to a platform that they normally wouldn't be able to have so like we've been talking about this one candidate that you're running against because he's been saying the divisive things and you know by saying by doing that he has put injected himself into conversations where he normally really shouldn't be in it he shouldn't take up our space as like mm-hmm. people talking about politics so um i guess that gets to like the larger scope of what what do you think is the direction for like politics locally like what do you think yeah how do you think people should engage with it um in a, in a new way, I guess, as as a new generation of people trying to run for office, as yourself and we had Julian Ivy on last week. Like, what do you what do you see as you know some of the new ideas that could come up? Well, first of all, Mr. Ivy's fantastic. I haven't I met him personally, but I, I listened to that um, that radio podcast and it was terrific. He's terrific. Um, but moving forward. <laughs> A city council election should be a discussion. It should be a community dialogue where neighbors are coming together to decide what's best for their city, what way to go forward. Um, and, and the council um, candidate you speak of actually ran for a Senate twice for the Republican nominee and is now taking some of those divisive issues and bringing it to a city election. U.S. Senate or state Senate? U.S. Senate. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You didn't know that? <laughs> I did not know, no. Yeah, he ran twice for the Republican nomination, which, good for him. I'm all for people running, but um, I don't like it when they come back and bring divisive issues into my city. This should be a community discussion. And whether you disagree with your neighbor or not, we should be able to have a very civil discussion, bring people to the table, encourage more voters, go out on election day and have our voice be heard, and move the city forward. That's one of the reasons I'm going to sleep very well uh, Tuesday, November 7th. Which is the election, by the way. <laughs> I'm going to sleep very well because in some sense I feel I've already won. I've brought people together. I've talked to neighbors who otherwise wouldn't have talked to an invested student. I've really kind of changed people's minds, I think, about the direction of our city. And in my opinion, I've introduced positivity into the race. Um, and I've had positive feedback. And that's, that's the point, right? That's what we should want from local politics. Of course, we want people who are going to vote the way... Uh, we want them to. That's natural. But we also want people who are inclusive. Um, and I think that it's become very clear in this race through uh, various forums and through canvassing what neighbors are look. you know, what neighbors who are running for this position um, intend to move our city forward and which don't. And I think Mr. Ivey has been a terrific example um, of kind of a young person getting involved in politics and moving to the discussion into a productive manner. And that's what elections are about. And it's it's concerning for me to see kind of the hostility from some of the other candidates. Um, so, yeah, let's let's take that conversation into national politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we're in the midst of the massive upheaval as we've been kind of digesting it over the past two years. Um and I'd like to, you know, um, I guess pick your brain a bit as to um, what what are what are the the issues that are kind of on the in the background that don't get brought up in the national dialogue that are kind of driving the I don't want to say anxieties because even that word kind of has some kind of like implications behind it, but like what. What are, what are the issues for you that are the essential ones that, like, if a Democrat's going to be running as a Democrat, that they should be focusing on? Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think single-payer health care. Um, okay. I'm for Medicare for all. Uh, I think that's incredibly important. Uh, I'm for a raised minimum wage, which I believe you talked to Mr. Ivy about, if right. I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I want to see them protect and expand social security. I think that's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of these um, economic issues, I think, where we're empowering uh, the middle class um, and trying to get as many people up into the middle class as possible. And, you know, public servants willing to take on, I don't want to say the big corporations, but, you know, public services willing to take on the big corporations. Uh, where you see Elizabeth Warren and, and Senator Sanders doing good work in that, um, protecting us so we don't have another 2008 um, bank-led recession. So when I look... Um, when I look for these public servants like Jamie Raskin, I think he's terrific, like Jamie Raskin, people who are supporting um, health care, who are supporting Social Security, who are supporting a minimum wage, who are in favor of progressive taxation. Um, so that's kind of the things I look for. And of course, I want the social issues to be there as well. Of course, I'm not going to vote some for someone if you're a, a bigot, uh, um, you know, if you're homophobic, if you're anti-black of course you're not going to get my vote in those scenarios but moving past that i think it's incredibly important to have these kind of economic uh, interests where you're looking out for the lower and middle class okay we're gonna take our last break now um and then we're gonna speak to some of those issues of um democrats taking on that boogeyman corporation and big (laughs) business um so stay tuned aren't people the march by of tomorrow i think it's super relevant to what we were just talking about um but you're trying to sue them hey <laughs> so the yeah getting to your point on um democrats who uh you know they, they take on the interests that we we see as dominating our politics um this week uh the Cong- congress voted or the senate voted to overturn um, a rule imposed after the 2008 crash um, that made it easier for citizens to sue banks and credit card companies. So this comes in the wake of the Equifax hack, um, where 150 million people's um, personal information were uh, exposed online, and um, there, like people, people within Equifax 
in the, in the corporate hierarchy of it uh, profited off of this <laughs> mm-hmm. of of this problem. Um, but so this is one of the few issues where Republicans have found complete unity on with Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and John Kennedy of Louisiana is the only defection. So can you talk about how this issue affects people, why people should take note and what it says about the, uh, the Republican Party in contrast with the Democratic Party? Yeah, it just makes you throw up your hands. I mean, Equifax <laughs> goes and, and by all accounts messes up and then you can't sue them. Um, you know, and this is before this is an Obama regulation. First off, this is an Obama administration tool that they're overriding. And before, I think you could do a class action lawsuit against these big banks um and now that's what's being taken off the table and so if we want to talk about these progressive issues we can go back to why unions were created one of the reasons unions were created was to represent workers against large corporate entities and right collective bargaining allowed people to file suits against companies when they wouldn't have been otherwise able to so the principle of a lot of people coming together pooling resources to sue corporate wrongdoing has been in america for a very long time and I think this is just representative of the Trump administration's priorities. It's It shows what the Republican Senate and Republican House priorities are. Uh, we have so many issues in this country to tackle, and you're increasing the likelihood, and my belief, of another 2008-like recession by giving corporations more power, and you're not even letting them be held accountable to the people they harm. Right. And so now I think, if I if I read this correctly, to you know, apply for these credit cards to do business with these banks, you're basically signing away your right to sue. And, you know, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a good idea. And we can get into corporate personhood, right? Uh, or cor- or corporations, people are not. Uh, but there are people in the sense we, we get to sue them. That has been through uh, litigation and through our court system many, many times that we have a right to sue corporations. So it's unfortunate to see this. And I think one of the most infuriating parts about this whole debacle with Equifax is you talk about doing business with banks and credit cards. You don't get to choose whether you do business with Equifax or not. Right, like just exactly. by virtue of existing. But you're you not have really doing. Credit. You're not doing business with Equifax. You're the product. Yeah, you're. I the think product, that was an important right. distinction. Yeah. I think um, John Oliver did something yeah. on this. But the the point is that they're selling your credit to banks, yeah. right? So in order to be profited off of by Equifax, we now have to sign away our right to to sue them if they do something wrong with us as products. Which would be bad enough any time, but especially after the recent Equifax yeah. hack, you would think that this would not be the opportune time to go down that yeah. route. Yeah. So another big piece of news this week is the incoming resignation of Senator mm-hmm. Jeff Flake from Arizona. And this follows right on the heels of a similar announcement from sim- uh, Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee. And both of these Republicans have come out. They've condemned Trump. Jeff Flake wrote a book about, uh, I think he called it The Conscious of a Conservative, mo- modeled after a speech by Barrett Goldwater in the 1960s. And Bob Corker has been tweeting about how the White House is in a, an adult daycare. So they're really, they're really, at least in terms of rhetoric, going against the Trump administration with, with all the ammunition they can muster. But they're not voting against these conservative bills because they're still conservatives. Yeah. And I think that that raises a really interesting question because when nobody's speaking out against Trump, Democrats, liberals, progressives, we have our hands up. We're saying you need to talk about the insanity that's going on in the White House. And then when somebody does speak out against Trump, I think Democrats then say, well, why aren't you doing anything other than speaking out against Trump? So what what is your take on kind of this issue about what Republicans should be doing if they're in positions of power to resist the Trump administration? Yeah. Should they be should we well, be demanding that they not only speak against him but vote against him or is like kind of locking arms and saying, hey, because we're conservatives, we'll still vote for conservative bills. But we're we're disagreeing with you, at least on style, if not on substance enough. <laughs> well, you know me. I think all Republicans should become Democrats. So that's my solution. <laughs> but uh, I kid. Um, it's important to remember Flake and Corker are conservatives. And I think sometimes uh, we forget that. And I think someone can have qualms with Trump's governmental style um, and still be conservative. I, I think it's probably I love it if they started voting against Trump. 
Um, and now that they're not running for re-election, maybe they'll go down that path more. And when you're saying, are we going to sing Kumbaya with conservatives? Uh, I'm a little bit of a pragmatist in the sense that we killed the Affordable Care Act repeal many times. And we did that with moderate Republicans. And so would I love them to be Democrats? Of course I would. Um, but we need 50 plus one. Uh, to stop this Republican administration from overriding some of the great Obama policies. Um, and so we're going to need some moderate Republicans. On specifically Flake and Corker's retirement, we talked previously of, of yeah. kind of uh, the primary politics in play here. And so, you know, what the uh, alternative motives are uh, remains unseen. But I think you're seeing people are, are fed up. I think people, Republicans are fed up with this administration. I think they can see the writing on the wall that there's going to be difficulties going forward. Uh, I don't know if Trump's going to win re-election. I think we're a little too far down the road to start speculating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that the Senate's going to be very hard for us to take, uh, just looking at the map and what kind of conservative states are in play. Uh, but certainly Arizona seems to be a possible uh, pickup opportunity, yeah. and we need every Democratic senator we can get. So the the next question is almost... Is it better for Republican senators who oppose Trump to resign or stay in office, right? Because obviously if if they resign and progressives can pick up all these seats, like right. that's that's great for the progressive movement. But in all likelihood, Marsha Blackburn is going to win the seat in Tennessee vacated by Bob Corker right. and she's going to be more loyal to Trump than Bob Corker. And there is still a possibility for somebody like Kelly Ward in Arizona to beat uh, Kirsten Sinema, who's the Democrat who's running. And there's a possibility for these senators who are, even if they're only disagreeing with Trump in style and not in substance, they're going to leave and they're going to be replaced with even mm -hmm. more crazy people. Like I, I listened to a bunch of political podcasts like this one, and they're talking about a purge of the Republican Party. They're talking about how Bannon and Trump are managing to squash all criticism and the few people that are really outspoken against them, they're now leaving. Like is is that the way that the Republican Party should be going? Like should they kind of, they're almost falling on their swords, right? right. Well, from my we're going to lose power <laughs> right. to fight against Trump, which is great, but that also means that there are fewer people in power to push back against Trump. So it kind of like the third dimension. If we can't count on these conservatives to vote against conservative bills, should we ask them to suck it up and stay in office and vote with Trump only 90% of the time instead of 100% of the time like their successors might? Well, the perfect answer is to have every moderate Republican in a deep red state stay mm -hmm. and have every moderate Republican in a swing state leave, right? Yeah. That would be the perfect <laughs> opportunity, right? Because we know Alabama is always going to. Uh, uh, we'll maybe see. not. Maybe we'll not. <laughs> Doug Jones, 2017. <laughs> All right. I'll put Mississippi. That. Well, we know that Mississippi is generally going to vote for Republicans. So if we have a moderate Republican, we want that. And we want Republicans who are statesmen and who have you know loyalty to the country and loyalty to their constituents and see that overturning the Affordable Care Act uh, is going to leave people uninsured, that see that global warming is real and we have to do something about it, right? Um, so is this, is this fanciful thinking? Right. <laughs> this might be fanciful uh, thinking, uh, certainly. But... I think if a Republican is willing to stay, uh, who's moderate and who's coming from a deep red state, we should try to work with them as much as possible without obviously giving up our progressive values. Um, and maybe, who knows, maybe we'll elect a strong progressive in Alabama. All right. We're going to have to cut it there. Thank you, Alex, for joining us today. Thank you. November 7th. November 7th, College Park. 7 to 8. <laughs> uh, if you're in District 2, you can vote at City Hall. Great. All right. That is uh, revolution on the air. Thank you for joining us today. So now I'm going back again. I got to get to her somehow. All the people we used to know that were an illusion to me now. Some are mathematicians, some are carpenters' wives. Don't know I don't know what they do with their lives But me, I'm still on the road Ahead for another joint We always feel the same We just saw it from a different point